All right. Let's open up in a word of prayer this morning. We can get into our Daniel study. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We just give you praise for another opportunity that we have to be together as your church. We thank you, Lord, for the times that we can gather together. Thank you, Lord, for our uh, uh, just gathering as a body and to worship you, Lord, to hear your word being taught, Lord, to, uh, to just study and worship you. We thank you for that. We just pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we uh, go through Daniel. Pray for this uh, important section of scripture, Lord, that you would just give us understanding into it, Lord, give us wisdom and help us to just know more about your plans, uh, which you have in store for the future. We thank you, Lord, again for this time. We pray that you would be with us now. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 9. In our last two studies in Daniel 9, we looked at the first 19 verses of this chapter, which has to do with Daniel's prayer. Now, as we come to the last eight verses of the chapter, what we have is a continuation of those first 19, and this chapter really is one self-contained unit that we see here. Most, most focus when you come to Daniel chapter 9 is on these last eight verses uh, of the chapter. If you'll remember, Daniel had been reading out of the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was somewhat of a contemporary of Daniel's, but he was quite a bit older, God used Jeremiah to warn the nation of Judah about the coming captivity at the hands of the Babylonians. He was already prophesying when the nation was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was used by God during the captivity, so his ministry started a little bit later. But as one who lived during the captivity, he was also very interested in what Jeremiah had revealed about the captivity. And therefore, that's what he was reading. And as he was reading through Jeremiah, he came across the number 70. 70 years that Jeremiah had told Judah that they would be in captivity in Babylon. And their captors, um, or 70 years until they would be allowed to return to Jerusalem and their captors would be dealt with by God. And at this point in time, it was, as Daniel was reading this, it was getting very near to that 70 years of captivity. Daniel himself, taken captive at the age of around 15 years old, was a little over 80 at this point in time. And so he knew that those 70 years were almost up. So what does he do? Well, he does what Jeremiah said the nation should do at the end of those 70 years. In Jeremiah chapter 29... Jeremiah said they will call upon the Lord, they will pray to the Lord. So Daniel reads and is reminded of what God had promised to his people, and so Daniel prays in response to that. He calls upon the Lord, just as God had said that the nation would do, and he prays a prayer of submission, of confession, of repentance for, not just himself, but for the nation of Israel. And not just for the southern nation of Judah, but he includes a prayer for all of God's chosen people, even those who had been taken captive and scattered a hundred years earlier because they were part of God's chosen nation as well. So this is a prayer that Daniel prays for the entire nation. And then at the end, he prays for God to do what he promised that he would do. And he said this starting in verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. So so first off, this is for your glory, O Lord. This is for your sake, O Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts and on account of your great compassion. It is for God that Jerusalem is to be restored. Why? Because he said that's what he would do. Because Daniel knew that it was God's will to restore the city after 70 years had passed. And how did he know that? 
How did Daniel know the will of God? Well, Jeremiah 29.10 says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Daniel saw in God's word that God would do this. And therefore, Daniel prayed that God would accomplish his will. Daniel's prayer ends in verse 19, where he says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. God said he was going to do this. Daniel is sitting there in prayer believing him, right? It's time for this to happen. There's no question in his mind. Accomplish your will, O Lord. Do what it is that you desire to do. That's Daniel's attitude here. He is so wrapped up in the promises and the plans of God that he's calling for the accomplishment of God's will. And that's where we left Daniel last time. He had read the word of God. He had, God had spoken to him through his word. Daniel had responded to God through prayer. And now, in our study this morning and in the next few weeks, we're going to see God respond back to Daniel. And God's response is a doozy. In the last verses of this chapter, we have one of the most crucial elements of biblical prophecy that God has given. Someday when we get to heaven, we need to thank Daniel for getting down on his knees and praying this prayer. Because God truly blessed him and us through that prayer. In these final verses, we have elements that reveal the future of Israel's history that we could not understand otherwise. Some people say that these verses contain the single most important defense of the divine authorship of Scripture. In other words, what they say is that if these verses prove to be untrue, if these verses do not pan out, then we might as well throw the rest of it away. But we're going to see as we go through them that they have proven to be true so far, and there's no reason to believe that they won't continue to do so. Now keep in mind from our previous studies, the first chapters of the book of Daniel were written from the Gentile point of view, revealing things that will happen to the Gentile nations in the future, primarily dealing with them. But now, and really starting back in chapter 8, the focus has shifted back to God's plan for Israel, to God's plan for his chosen people. Now that this captivity is almost at an end for Israel, what now? What can Israel expect now? What does the future hold for them? Keep in mind something here. Um, The end of the 70 years is close, and there is anticipation of blessing from that, right? If you read through Jeremiah, you see that it looks like things are going to be all roses coming in, coming up roses after the end of that time. But remember what made Daniel sick back in chapter 8. There was a prophecy or a vision before this one that made Daniel sick back then. Another prophecy that revealed the future of the nation being cast down like stars from heaven. As one would turn, uh, would turn his attention toward the beautiful land and trample God's people underfoot. It revealed putting an end to regular sacrifice. It revealed the holy place, Jerusalem, being trampled down at a time in the future. And you know what? At this time that Daniel's praying in chapter 9, there is no regular sacrifice in the beautiful land. The land isn't even beautiful at this time. They're not living there. There is nothing to trample down because it's already been trampled down as Daniel is praying this prayer. So what does this mean? It means that Daniel's probably a little bit confused. Here he's all excited about the land being restored and the people returning, but he also knows that when they do, this other calamity is going to come upon them at some point after that. How do these two things fit together? Well, we're going to find out because God is going to reveal this to Daniel. He gives him more information regarding these events. He's not going to leave his faithful servant in the dark for long. He's going to send a messenger to show him what is going to happen and how it's all going to work out. And we start to see this in verse 20. So look at verse 20 with me. 
Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. And we'll stop there for a second. So in this verse, we have the setup. The context of what will come next. This is the transition verse between Daniel's prayer and God's answer to Daniel's prayer. Moves us from the one to the other. So what do we see here? We specifically see four verbs listed here. Four things that Daniel was doing. It says he was speaking, he was praying, confessing my sin, presenting my supplication. Okay, so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that these next events are during that same prayer that we just studied. And how do we know that? Well, look back at verse 3. He said, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said. And you see here, all four of those same words, those same verbs are used there. He is talking about this same prayer while he's praying this prayer that we had just studied. God began to work. Events started to unfold that would have a profound effect on Daniel, on Israel, and on us as well. And we see here that God wastes no time in moving to answer Daniel's prayer. We're, we're, we all wish that God answered prayers the way that he's going to answer prayer here. And how does he do that? He sends a messenger to visit Daniel. Look at verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Daniel gets a visitor. While he's praying, and it's a familiar visitor, at least a familiar visitor to Daniel. The angel Gabriel visits him. Now, that's not exactly what it says here, right? It says, the man Gabriel visits him. But we know that Gabriel is actually an angel. And why does he call him a man? Why does it say the man Gabriel? Well, remember back in the previous chapter, back in chapter 8. Daniel had seen Gabriel before. In his previous vision, which is what he alludes to in verse 21 as well, when he says, whom I had seen in the vision previously. And that's what this is referring to, the vision from chapter 8. He had seen Gabriel in that vision as well. So within the previous vision, Gabriel appeared, it said there, as a mighty man. At least from Daniel's point of view, that's what he looked like. He came in the appearance of a man. So now... Fast forward around 13 years, because that's really how much time has probably elapsed between these two chapters. How does Gabriel appear to Daniel again? Well, he takes on the similar form, right? So that Daniel instantly recognizes him. But this time, there's a difference. Gabriel is really there in front of him now. And in stating that he's the man Gabriel, we know that it's the same person as well. It's interesting to me that Daniel recognizes Gabriel from a vision that he had 13 years before. It was a vision that made a profound effect on Daniel, so it's not that surprising that he recognized him. But we also see the timing of when this all takes place. He says here that this is about the time of the evening offering. This would have been around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, the fact that Daniel refers to this time in this way, has some significance as well. Because Daniel, again, is over 80 years old. And there hadn't been an evening offering for close to 70 years. While the temple was standing in Jerusalem and the sacrifices were conducted there, this would have been the time that Daniel, in his youth, would have seen the smoke rising from the temple as sacrifices were going on. This would have been the time that the people would have been confessing their sins before God, making atonement for them through sacrifice. That's what this time had been for when the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. But the temple wasn't still standing in Jerusalem. At this time, the temple and the city itself were lying in ruins. They were in piles of rubble. And yet, here's this man who hadn't seen the temple or seen the city of Jerusalem itself for 70 years, and he still thinks of this time of the day as the time of the evening offering. To Daniel, there was, this was still the time 
to be confessing and making atonement for sins, even though he'd been just a kid when he'd left Jerusalem. Now, in this verse, the New American Standard uses a phrase here that I think is better read in other translations. It says here, Gabriel came to me in my extreme weariness. That's the phrase used in a New American Standard. Now, some of your translations might say, being caused to fly swiftly or came to me in swift flight. And I think those are better translations. This is one of those phrases where it's not used like anywhere else. So it's hard for people to know exactly what it means. But I think the came to me in swift flight is a better translation for this because I believe what this is conveying is that while Daniel is praying this prayer, he's suddenly visited as he's in prayer. Probably just at the point where he's speaking the things in verse 19 where he's called on God to hear, to forgive, to listen and take action. Then it's at that point in time the man Gabriel is suddenly there and taps him on the shoulder or gets his attention or maybe just him appearing in the room is enough to get Daniel's attention. But either way, he's standing there in an instant. And there's a distinct difference here between the way that Gabriel appears in chapter 8 and his appearance here. In chapter 8, again, he appeared to Daniel within this vision that Daniel was seeing. Here, Daniel isn't having a vision. He's down on his knees praying, and when he looks up, Gabriel, the man whom Daniel remembered from the vision before, is actually standing there. He had come from wherever he had been to physically stand in Daniel's presence. We know from Luke 1.19 that Gabriel is one who normally stands in the presence of God. He would normally be in heaven. Gabriel was the angel that God sent for very important messages. He was the one that Gabriel, that, that he sent to announce the birth of Christ. So he normally stands in the presence of God. And so how swiftly does one need to fly from heaven to get to Medo-Persia? And I ask that because there are commentators that actually have sections trying to figure out how fast does an angel fly. I don't really think that's the point here, though. Um, I don't think we need to know the speed and the distance between heaven and Medo-Persia and all that stuff. I think suffice it to say, Gabriel is able to make this trip in an instant, and he quickly appears right there in front of Daniel. Well, in verse 22, he tells Daniel why he's there. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. So this is the crux for Gabriel's mission. This is why he came. He came so that Daniel might have insight with understanding. Now think about that. Daniel gets down to pray one day. And before he even has a chance to say amen, Gabriel, the messenger of God, the angel that God sends to deliver the most important messages, stands before him and tells him that he's come to give him more understanding from the Lord. This is a very significant message that Daniel is going to receive here. And the way in which he's receiving it is quite significant. It gives us a little sense of how important this is. And the importance of this can't be lost on Daniel either. And he goes further with the explanation in verse 23. And he actually tells Daniel why he's come to deliver this message personally. He says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Here we get a little glimpse of when this all started. We've already mentioned that Daniel hadn't finished the prayer when Gabriel got there. So he must have been sent sometime during the prayer. Well, it wasn't even that God was listening to Daniel and was so moved by what he was saying, right? I mean, sometimes we like to think that, oh, we're praying, oh, my prayer is so good that God's got to listen to this one. And as Daniel's sitting there praying, it's not like Daniel sitting there and he just, oh, he said the right word and the right combination and God responded to that. No, that's not what we see here. He, he didn't send Gabriel halfway through this prayer. He didn't send Gabriel when Daniel was close to the end. What do we see here? Gabriel was sent as soon as Daniel started. At the beginning of the supplications, the command was issued. As soon as Daniel got down on his knees, probably before he cleared his throat to begin speaking, God commands Gabriel 
to go to see Daniel. Why? Simple. Because Daniel was highly esteemed, it says. A word that can mean greatly beloved. God did not need to hear what Daniel was going to pray uh, in order to know how he was going to respond to him. There wasn't anything that Daniel could have said that would have altered the way in which God was going to respond to his prayer. The command was already given. And we, we talked about this a little, uh, little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about prayer. When we pray, we don't tell God anything that he doesn't already know. God knew what Daniel had read. God knew how Daniel was going to respond. God knew what Daniel was going to say in his prayer. He knew it all. Daniel was a man through his faith and obedience and unwavering devotion to God who was firmly in the greatly beloved category. And over and over again, we've seen God pour out his blessings upon Daniel. And here we see him reveal to him truths that he had revealed to no one else. God used his faithful servant Daniel in mighty ways. And at the end of the verse, Gabriel tells him, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. In other words, do not miss this, Daniel. Listen up, pay attention. This is extremely important for you to hear and to understand. You have to get this right. You cannot miss this. Gabriel here uses the word vision. He calls it a vision, but this is probably better understood as, as an appearance because there aren't the same elements here as there are in other visions. There aren't any animals running around in this one, coming out of seas or, or statues. Um, there's no horns. There's no stars falling to the ground. There's just an angel appearing to Daniel to give him this message. So it's not a vision in the same sense as some of the others, but it's still a very important message from God. What Daniel is going to receive from Gabriel has to do with what is going to come next for Israel, for God's chosen nation. Now look with me at verse 24. As we start to take a look at the message itself, Gabriel begins here by telling him this. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, there are a number of things that Gabriel tells him right here in this verse. In fact, this verse, I would say, summarizes the rest of what he's going to say. He's going to give some more details after this point in time. The message revealed here reveals the overall time frame of events. And then he will drill down into some, of, uh, some more details and some things in the following verses. We're going to concern ourselves primarily with the rest of our time this morning with what is revealed here. And then make our way to the rest of the prophecy in coming weeks. But what we see here in verse 24 is an overall time period that will accomplish a number of things. And he lists six things here that will be accomplished during this time frame or because of this time frame. Now, first off, we need to note what he says at the very beginning of the verse. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city. Now, right off the bat, we need to look at the word decreed. It's a word that comes from a base word that means to cut off. How does cut off relate to the word decreed? Or some translations say determined. Well, once again, this is an indication that God is the one setting forth these events. This is all about God's sovereignty. God has cut out or cut off a specific period of time to accomplish a set number of things. He has sovereignly determined this course of action with a beginning, a set beginning, and a set end point. Just as we've seen with the captivity and with the other prophecies so far in this book, God is unquestionably in control of what is going to happen here. And Gabriel is making it clear yet again that this is the case here as well. So the decree has been set. This time period has been set, that these 70 weeks, this appointed time, is set forth. 
But for whom is it set forth? It says here, for your people, is what Gabriel tells Daniel. Who are Daniel's people? Well, there are many who would say that these are believers. That it's just talking about believers, and that this would pertain to believers in every age. These are generally the same people that would say that this would also include the church, and then that when you take the promises away from Israel and assign them to the church, you can include this prophecy here as well, because they would say, we are all part of Daniel's people. However, I would say not so fast, because he also says here, and your holy city. It pertains to your people and your holy city. Now, we want to be very clear about this, because there's no room for confusion or error on this. Remember, Gabriel told Daniel, give heed to this. Get this, Daniel. Understand this. What exactly, or who exactly, is this given for? Well, turn back once again with me to Jeremiah 29. We've been to Jeremiah 29 a few times already. But I want you to see a few verses there again. Remember, this is part, at least, of what Daniel was reading that started this whole course of events. If you look with me at verse 1 of Jeremiah 29. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people from Nebuchadnezzar that had... uh, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And you look at who this prophecy was given to, the people who were taken from where? From Jerusalem to Babylon. Look at verse 4. It's repeated to this audience in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Once again, they were exiled from where to where? From Jerusalem to Babylon. Now look down at verse 14 after he talks about what is needed for restoration. What these people who have been taken from Jerusalem to Babylon are to do. He says, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. They will be brought back to the place from where they were sent into exile. Where was that? We just saw it twice. Jerusalem. Right? They were sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. They, the people, will be brought back to Jerusalem. What do we have here? We have a people and we have a city. Right? Now come back to Daniel 9. And let's look back a minute at Daniel's prayer. Remember, as Daniel reads this, responding to what he saw in Jeremiah, he's praying this prayer. Now look at verse 16 of Daniel chapter 9. What does he pray? O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem. Your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Skip down to verse 18. He says there, O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. Down to verse 19. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. You see, all through here, he is equating two things, the people and the city. The judgment came upon the people and the city, Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Now here comes Gabriel, coming in response to what Daniel is praying being sent by God to give an important message in light of the supplications that Daniel has brought before him. What news is he bringing? News that pertains to your people and your holy city. This pertains to the people of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. This is very specific here. 
This is the way Daniel would have understood this. This is the way that Gabriel meant it. And this is exactly what the context demands for this. This is who the prophecy is for. It's a prophecy that deals with a specific period of time for God to accomplish something with his focus being on his chosen nation. Now, what is he going to accomplish? Now, I know some of you might be thinking at this point, why haven't we talked about the 70 weeks yet? That comes first, right? He talked about 70 weeks. It's right off the bat. But I want to assure you that we are going to talk about the 70 weeks, just not yet. Not today. We're not going to get to that today. The 70 weeks are a specific time frame that cut out time that we will define. But before we do that, I want to look at the six things that are going to be accomplished during this time. So bear with me for just a little while longer. We'll get to the discussion of the 70-week time frame. But you have to come back for that. We're not going to get to it today. What Gabriel presents here is a six-fold decree that God is going to accomplish, and specifically what will happen for Israel. Now, some of these things that we'll see will have effects that will reach out to the whole world. Uh, The condition uh, of the entire world will be changed at the end of this time in accordance with God's plan. And at the end of this period, Messiah will have come to earth and he will be establishing his eternal kingdom that we've already seen in chapters 2 and chapter 7. And that kingdom will be over the entire world. So we can say that this decree will affect everyone to a certain degree, but what we cannot do is take these things or take this prophecy and say that it now applies, oh, it's not to Israel anymore, now it's a whole other group, such as the church, instead of to Israel. No, this still applies to Israel and will always apply to Israel. But there will be some results that will have effect over the entire world. And we'll see that as we go through here. So what are these six things? He says, first off, to finish the transgression. This time period is to finish the transgression. So the first thing that we see as the purpose for this time and what will happen within this time is we'll finish the transgression. The word for finish is really a word that's better understood as restrained or refrained. It's translated with those two words most often, It's also translated shut up, forbid, withhold, and stayed. It's translated many different ways. But the idea is that the transgression or sin will no longer be allowed to run free. It will no longer be given free reign as it currently was during Daniel's time, as it is today. Right? I think we would all agree that sin today runs free. Right? There's really nothing out there stopping it anymore. What have we seen over and over again in Israel's history? We put, we, if we look specifically at Israel, what have we seen over and over again in Israel's history? What is it that got them into hot water to the point that Daniel had to pray for their restoration in the first place? They rebelled against God. They sinned against God. They did it over and over again. It wasn't just one time. It was over and over again throughout their history. That's not to say that they were any worse with regard to that than anyone else, but as God's people, they were held to God's standards and therefore judged according to that standard. That's why God was punishing them in a way that he didn't punish other places. But there was nothing to stop them from sinning in the first place. And they were left to suffer the consequences after the fact, after God punished them or disciplined them for that. And that's really the same way it is in the world today. Nothing has really changed in that regard. There's, there's sin all around us. There are people out there today flaunting their sinful lifestyles, making money off of their sin, becoming powerful and influential because of their sin. And we see it all around us, and they are mocking God on a daily basis as they do it. And as believers, it's tiring to see why do they get away with this? Why does it continue to happen? And God allows that to go on today, but there will come a time when that will no longer be allowed, when sin will be restrained completely. And along with that is the second thing that we see here. He says also to make an end of sin. And the first one and the second one to me sound very similar. 
The word for sin here is in the plural, though. So we have sins. There is a distinction. We've gone from the general to the specific. Sin as a whole will be restrained. Sins as specific actions of the individual will be done away with. They will be sealed up. Some think that this is talking about judgment, and I think that's a possibility. At the end of this time period, do you know what we're going to have? At the end of this, these 70 weeks, we're going to have the kingdom that was established and prophesied in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. We're going to have the Messiah ruling and reigning on earth during that time. During this time, sin will not be tolerated. Every sin will be dealt with immediately. For Christ will be ruling and reigning with a rod of iron during this time. No individual sin will go unpunished. For sin itself will be restrained and all sins will be dealt with in immediate judgment. And it's at the end of this time that that will all come to pass, that that will be a reality on the earth. A far cry from what we have going on today. The third thing he says is to make atonement for iniquity. And the word for atonement is a word that means to cover. That's the same word used in Genesis for the way in which Noah was to cover the ark with pitch. Now, you may have noticed this common theme here, all right, amongst these first threes. We have these first three statements, these first three things that will be accomplished, um, is the way in which sin is going to be dealt with for the nation. It will be finished in general. All specific sins will be put to an end. They will no longer occur. And all sins will be atoned for. They will be covered. We know that atonement for sins only comes through faith in the gospel, in the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, dying for our sins and providing that cover for them with his own blood. It's the same atoning work that will come into play at this time as well. This will be a part of this cut out time, this time period. What we're talking about is a time where there will be a national Salvation, a time when the nation of Israel as a whole will be saved. Now, how can that be? How can a nation be saved? Isn't salvation a matter of individual repentance and submission? Yes, it is. But what we're going to have at this time is the sum total of those that are left out of the nation of Israel coming to saving faith in the work of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. This will take place at the end of the tribulation period, which again we're not going to talk about today, but we'll get to that, prior to Christ establishing his earthly kingdom. Those who truly belong to the nation of Israel will believe in the provision of salvation that God has set forth. And that means putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. I want to look at this with you. Turn with me over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11. In this chapter, Paul makes it clear that there is still a national identity for Israel and that God is going to be working with them as a nation still. Look at the very first verse of the chapter, Romans 11.1. 1, he says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now you see here, we're talking about God's people. Now some might say, well, of course, he hasn't rejected his people. Because like we talked about in Daniel's case, some would say, well, maybe he's just talking about believers in general here. Well, no. Look at how Paul defines himself as being a part of God's people. He says, I'm a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, He's making a specific reference to the fact that he physically belongs to the nation of Israel. This is what he was born into, and God has not rejected that people. Now, all through this chapter, he goes on to explain what is happening now, how salvation has been offered to the Gentiles at this time in order to make Israel jealous, and how we, 
you and I as Gentiles have been grafted into the root of the vine, even as some who belong to the vine have been cut off. God's focus has shifted away from Israel for a time and is focused on the Gentiles, on the church, and we'll get to this time period again in a later study. But look down with me at verse 25, if you're still in Romans 11. I want you to see what Paul says is going to happen to Israel when this time period is over. When God turns his attention back to the nation of Israel, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is the time period that I mentioned where Israel has been partially hardened. Until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until God is done dealing specifically with the Gentiles. And then what happens? Look at verse 26. And thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God finishes his plan with the Gentiles and then he turns his attention back to Israel and thus all Israel will be saved, Paul says. Ungodliness will be removed. Their sins will be taken away. This is not talking about Jews that are being saved today, although there are some being saved today as well. Saved even though they have not speci- God has not specifically been dealing with them. But those Jews being saved today cannot be the ones in view here because you know what's going to happen when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? All believers on the earth, Jew and Gentile alike, are going to be raptured, taken up out of the earth. The remnant Jews saved during the church age will be caught up in the rapture at that time as well. So this is not talking about them being saved. But there will be another event, another time of salvation that will encompass the nation. The time when the Jews left on earth will belong to Jesus Christ. They will all be saved. And this will occur at the end of the 70-week time period that Gabriel is revealing to Daniel. Now turn back to Daniel, but on your way back there, stop in the book of Zechariah, the second to the last book in the Old Testament. The 12th chapter of Zechariah. This chapter is dealing with the same time period. With the things that are taking place at the end of the 70 weeks. And look with me at verse 10 of Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. The Lord here causes an event. He pours out his spirit upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And by the way, who is that? The people and the holy city, just like we've been talking about in Daniel. And what will be the result? So that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. There will be a change of heart in Israel. This is a far cry different from the last time that the inhabitants of the city looked upon their own Messiah and they cried out, crucify him. At this time, they will mourn for him and they will weep bitterly over him. God is going to bring about the national restoration at this time. He's going to restore those whom he has chosen. And don't misunderstand when I say that. God is not going to save these people simply because they happen to be Jews living at this point in time. They're not going to be saved because they fit a certain criteria while others don't. No, saying that doesn't take into account the sovereign actions of God in salvation. God doesn't save them because they are Jews. God has sovereignly chosen, elected these people to be saved from before the foundation of the world just like he has for you and me, anyone that's a believer. He determined that you would be saved and in what time period um, we would live. 
anyone would live and under what circumstances their salvation would happen. And for these Jews living at the end of the tribulation, he determined that they would mourn over the Messiah whom they have pierced. What a remarkable and exciting turn of events when the nation of Israel finally gets it. There will still be some in the tribulation who will not believe and they will prove themselves to not be part of the true nation, but the majority of the nation at this time will come to saving faith and their sins will be atoned for. They will be covered. They will be saved. So turn with me back to Daniel 9. So in these first three statements, we've seen sin dealt with. And in the next decree, we see what will take its place. To bring in everlasting righteousness is the next one. Or literally, righteousness of the ages. This will be a time, unlike today, when righteousness is the norm and not sin. This once again will take place within the kingdom, which is where righteousness will be the norm. Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning. Sin will be dealt with and no longer tolerated, and righteousness will reign supreme. What a relief that will be for those in the kingdom. What a relief when we no longer have to turn our heads away from the TV, when we no longer have to worry about, well, what's the Super Bowl halftime show going to look like this year? Or that there won't be a Super Bowl halftime show. We won't have to worry about an embarrassing conversation at work or a crude joke that someone might share with us. We'll no longer have to worry about whether or not the mechanic is telling us about car repairs and whether or not, is he being honest with me? I don't know. I have no idea. The world at that time will be characterized by nothing but righteousness with our Lord and Savior ruling on the throne the government resting on his shoulders. That's what we see here. Another thing that will occur, the fifth thing, to seal up vision and prophecy. Vision and prophecy will be done at that time. They will no longer be necessary. Do you realize that when we're living with Christ for all eternity, we're not going to have to pull out our Bibles every morning to find out what God has to say today, what God has said to us? Why? Because it will all be accomplished. This, this, this book is leading us to that time. It's preparing us for that time. Once we're there, it will no longer be necessary. The truth in it will still be relevant. Maybe we'll still have a copy of it on our bookshelves, but it won't be the way in which God communicates with us. Just for time, we're almost out of time, I'll read to you from Isaiah chapter 2, where we see from Isaiah a picture of the time when Jerusalem is restored in the kingdom. And it says in Isaiah 2, starting in verse 2, now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways." And that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We won't have to rely on a book to hear what God has to say because we will be in his very presence. We will be able to hear it from him. Oh, I'm going to do my devotions today, so I'm going to walk up to the house of the Lord and talk to God. There will be no more things to be revealed in layers. No more funny dreams like Daniel had of, of, of animals coming up out of the, of the water. No more special types of revelation. What an exciting time and an exciting thought that this will apply to all, to everyone in the kingdom. You might say, but I thought you said that this was all just for Israel. Well, specifically what Daniel's hearing here is for Israel, but you see it says in Isaiah 2, that the nations will stream to Zion, the mountain of the Lord. Jew and Gentile alike will be able to hear what God has to say. Simply incredible to see what's in store for that future time. And finally, we have the sixth decree for this time period, to anoint the most holy place. Most holy place. Literally, this is holy of holies. The main views on this say that this, is, this either refers to Christ himself, 
as he is established as the king or possibly to the temple that will be established in the millennial kingdom. It's impossible to be too dogmatic either way. But in either case, what we see here is the permanent establishment of holiness and the dedication of worship to none other than God. There's not going to be any, oh, what, what does my friend believe? What, is, what, is, oh, what does this guy believe? It's going to be dedicated to God and none else. For Israel, this was always an issue, right? For they were constantly going after other gods. They were constantly looking for the flavor of the week. So by decree, these 70 weeks will put an end to all that and will establish God himself as the sole object of worship. And what a marvelous time that this will be. All of Israel's problems will be over at the end of this period. Not through the period. Through the period is going to be rough. But at the end of the period, they'll be over. But it will take these 70 weeks for these all to occur. There will be things happening, occurring to move them toward the end result throughout this period. But at the end of the 70 weeks, all the pieces will be in place. And there will be no more that must happen to accomplish all of this. What a glorious plan that God is establishing here. And it's exciting to see what he will accomplish during that time. But again, we're not done, not by a long shot. We're done for today, but we have a lot more to look at in these verses. So next time, as promised, we'll look at the timing of these 70 weeks and just what's in view there. Lord willing, I say Lord willing on that. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you once again, and Lord, we just give you praise for the, uh, the, the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you've revealed to us. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you used your prophet Daniel to uh, record this for us, to give us understanding into your future plans. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, help us, Lord, to uh, study it in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you, Lord, and, and we look forward to the time when we know that you will restore all things, when righteousness will rule and reign on the earth. And Lord, we just thank you so much. We look forward to that time. Lord, we just uh, pray that you would be with us as we uh, navigate through these days as your children in a world that um, is rampant with sin. We just pray, Lord, that we would uh, be keeping ourselves from it, keeping ourselves uh, dedicated and, and, uh, Lord, just submissive to you in all things. And pray, Lord, that you would help us to be sharing your truth uh, with those that are lost in this world. Thank you again for this time. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we move into the next hour. Just pray that uh, that would be a time that would honor and glorify you as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.